you were here last Wednesday, you'll recall that we began a new study regarding Him that overcomes. So let's go to lesson two of this study and open up to Revelation chapter two. We're just going to read verse seven of chapter two. If you recall, the basic fundamental theme of this lesson is not just these seven churches. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to get in too deeply in the seven churches individually. Uh, not go too deeply into what the, all they might stand for, but specifically uh, how the Lord Jesus spoke to them through this man, John, and gave these promises and assurances to those who overcome. And we considered at length what it was to be a full overcomer last week. I'll review that here in just a second. But let's read Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 and get our first of those seven statements we'll be considering over the course of the next few weeks. Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pause once again and bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the assurances that you give, Father, the promises that you give to all your people. And Father, I thank you that you always satisfy your side of the promise. You always satisfy your piece of any covenant that you establish with anybody, Father. I pray that you'd help us to recognize the urgency, Lord, on our part, that we might receive from you the strength and the wisdom and even the desire, Lord, to satisfy our part of that covenant and receive everything that you have for us. Lord, I praise you that you do offer so much in abundance, help us to receive in the same manner, abundantly. Bless this word to us tonight, Father. Give us even abundance in this passage, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, we considered last week just what it means to be a full overcomer, that term that you won't find necessarily verbatim in the word of God, but it's presented there. I think it's plain that it's Well, it's something that should be, as I prayed just a moment ago, an urgent uh, pursuit on our part because, well, it's the purpose of our lives after we receive salvation. After we've accepted the Lord Jesus for ourselves, it should be the purpose of our lives. It's what's presented to us. As I've said a number of different times, I always find the New Testament and the edges of the New Testament, and I say, well, if all we have is salvation, then this much doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us of the word. Uh, when you get right down to it, the whole, the whole Word of God, the entire Bible, uh, speaks to our pursuit of winning Christ. But that being said, that is much of the purpose of the New Testament, much of the purpose of, of Paul's uh, gospel for us. Um, as we look here, if you read ahead, as, as I suggested you did, if you read through Revelation 2 and verse 3, you understand that each one of these seven churches here in Asia Minor in the, in the day, each one of them had a message, received a message from Jesus, albeit a rather short one. He put a lot into each one of these, corrective some, some encouraging, some were uplifting, I would even go so far as to say. I'll use that term that is so common and... Well, kind of bandied about these days, but he was affirming to a number of these ones. And when the Lord Jesus affirms anything, he doesn't affirm sin. He affirms only those things that are of faith and those things that are good. So when he affirmed Smyrna, when he affirmed Philadelphia and what they were doing and encouraged them to do so, you can take that to the bank that that was worth affirming, worth encouraging in. Uh, At the end of each one of these statements, he makes, or each one of these messages that he had for these seven, he makes that statement. 
some derivative thereof, of to him that overcomes, and he identifies a blessing. That will be, well, a reward, I guess you could say. A reward for those ones who will overcome fully. Uh, Now, if you recall last week, we considered that there are measures of overcoming. Measures. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I have a lot of notes tonight, and I don't feel like I'm supposed to stick around very long on this on this first one here, so I want to get through it this evening and not sound like I'm rushing or, or set your head spinning or, or that sort of thing. But if you recall, we, we consider that there were measures of overcoming, that while we do overcome through Christ, we sang a couple of songs that kind of touched on that this evening, we understand that, well, it doesn't end at overcoming in salvation. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life, John five twenty four says. Shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Death has no hold on us. We will perhaps walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, if the Lord doesn't come and take us before that, well, before that point in our lives. But death doesn't have anything more than that shadow over us. Uh, because we are a new creation. We're a new people. First John 5, 4 says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And we do that through that overcoming work over the world that Jesus did. Um, That being said, that is the beginning of overcoming. Faith is the beginning of our overcoming mm, walk of faith, our overcoming fully as we consider and the, I'm just going to point this out here because it just gives an identification and it quantifies, to a certain extent, that there is a measure of overcoming, that there are varying measures of overcoming. We have overcome death because Jesus overcame death for us. We have passed from death unto life. There is the beginning. If you want to see the entire, op- not the opposite, but the farthest end of overcoming, then I'll take you to Revelation chapter 5. And if you recall in Revelation chapter 5, there was a time there, I'm not going to get into everything for it, or everything surrounding it and all of the details, but you remember that John was standing there before the throne, and there was a scroll that was presented there, and the scroll carried God's judgment, it had seven seals upon it, and it was presented there on the throne of the Lord Jesus, and well... You know what happens when each one of those seals was opened up. Tribulation of supreme measure came out of it. And if you recall, it said that, well, who's, who's qualified, I guess you could say? Who's capable of opening the scroll? And John was sad. It says, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Revelation 5.3 says, and John wept. Because he wanted the will of God to be satisfied. And it was presented there and it seemed like there was something There's a lot more to it, but it seemed like there was something more that should have been allowed in John's mind and John's understanding. And he wanted the Lord's will. And so it says that he wept. And then in verse 5 it says, One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. And if you remember that term that we all keyed on last week, Nikeo, overcome. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has Nikeo to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Nobody else was worthy. Nobody else was qualified. Nobody else had overcome to the sufficient measure that it required to unseal each one of those seven pieces of that scroll, except for the Lord Jesus. That's the maximum measure of victory and conquering, obviously. 
We can't attain to the measure that he has being the son of God. But he offers us the capability of overcoming fully to the capacity that we possibly can. And so I want the entire measure. I want the fullest measure to be sure. Uh, Even those ones that surrounded in the midst and were around the throne couldn't open that scroll. But they were up there close to the one who could. And so that's what we're pursuing as we look at these messages, these statements here, these assurances and blessings for those ones who are willing to overcome to the fullest measure in every victory that the Lord offers them, in every pursuit, in every battle, um, so that they might have the fullest conquering in the war that we have in our walk of faith. Now, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, that passage that we just read a moment ago, he speaks to those ones, well, who should, who have the opportunity to overcome. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, each one of the statements that we will be studying has this presented either before the statement or after it. So it should be understood that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what God's will is for us, to hear what he says here to these seven and to apply it for ourselves. God doesn't promise to give understanding to the one who isn't willing to receive understanding. We, we can see that through, well, throughout Jesus' ministry. You recognize that there are times when people's eyes were shut, people's hearts were hardened, people's ears were closed because they weren't willing to see. Uh, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 4, he's speaking to a, a generation of Israel, Israel having that history of not doing well before the Lord, not pursuing Him in the manner that they could and should have in that day. And Moses called them out on it, uh, well, exhorting them not to follow after their forefathers. He says, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. He recognizes hearts. He searches hearts. Scott just prayed a moment ago that the Lord would search us out, recognize what it is that we truly want, and expose that to us so that we might present to Him our willingness to listen to that, to hear that, and so that He might open up our ears to hear and our eyes to see. Open my eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Isn't that what we sing? Open our ears, Lord. Help us to love Him. Again, I can never quote Scripture, it seems, or quote Song, song lyrics, I can't do it. But you know the song and you can sing it for me. Uh, that's what we're called to do is ask him to open our eyes. We're all believers here. We all understand. We all, to some measure, want to seek and pursue the Lord and want to hear. But there are times when we need to ask him, Lord, I need to take the cotton out of my ears and put it into my mouth. As, as my father-in-law used to tell my wife uh, back in the day. <laughs> We need to ask the Lord to help us, help us to listen. And he doesn't promise to do otherwise, particularly those who are unbelieving. The believing do have ears to hear. We need to use them. In Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse 1, we might not always pursue after that hearing. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says there, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see. But does not see, and ears to hear, but does not hear. For they are a rebellious house. Yeah, we can be that. We can be rebellious against the things of God. Isaiah 42 and verse 18, another exhortation along these lines. Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I said, God's people and the people that he uses, even those who are believers. I mean, the Lord can have servants who he 
well, makes to serve for him. But there are those ones who are willing, but take a hiatus at faith sometimes. Step back and don't, well, don't listen precisely to what the Lord's saying to them. Who is blind is he who is perfect, and blind is the Lord's servant. Seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. His own children can blind themselves and deafen themselves to the things of God. So, Jesus speaks to those ones who perhaps are plugging up their ears, who are spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, not looking at those things, or at least have the tendency to be so, which we can. He who has an ear, you're a child of God, you have ears, you have the eyes. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You have no reason not to. Even the unbeliever, if they only have a natural ear, they should listen. They should listen up and listen for that word of life that, that can come. But for certainly, certainly those ones who have an ear for the word, an ear that's given to them as a believer by this Holy Spirit, we can listen to these things and pursue it. And so he tells you, pursue. He says, to him uh, who overcomes, this first passage that we've read, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And let me tell you one, the first statement here. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This first blessing that we're considering tonight, it's just a short little statement here, honestly, but there's a lot going on here. I'll give to him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, what are we dealing with here when it comes to the tree of life? And what is it talking about, this eating? And what is the paradise of God? And so on and so forth. Now, we could probably just off the cuff, fill out each one of these answers for ourselves without much problem. But it's good to consider these things because there is imagery here and there are deeper things that the Lord wants us to see, I believe. In speaking of this tree of life, let's just start with this, this mystery that is the tree of life. Uh, We see it elsewhere, right? You can look all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, of course. I imagine you all are familiar. This is kind of Sunday school Um, territory, and when I say Sunday school, I mean little kids Sunday school, learn about Adam and Eve from the beginning. And we can read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 8, where it says that the Lord of God planted, or the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So we're talking about a tree, We're talking about a number of trees. We're talking about those things growing up out of the ground. And then we start seeing those interesting things that we learn about so early. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems, as you look at this mysterious thing, that they presented as literal trees of some sort. One was, well... One was eaten of, we understand. It seems that the other one was able to be so. If you look in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God spoke about this second tree, this tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. After Eve had taken of that fruit, been beguiled by by the serpent, she went and she presented it to Adam. Adam took of that fruit and ate it for himself. Says the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You know, perhaps alarm bells go off in your in your 
head when you first read this and you consider this. We'll talk about those alarms here in a second. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And that's an interesting little mystery there. The tree of life. Again, what it looked like exactly, what it presented like precisely. You know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, people always talk about the apple, the apple, the apple. We don't know what fruit it was. We only know that she took of the fruit and it looked good. It seemed good. And it seemed like it was a good idea to eat it. And so she partook of it. And and it seems literally so, right? And that's what it seems this tree of life is as well. What it was that was precisely involved there, what it was and how it presented itself and all of the ins and outs, I'm not going to speculate entirely, at least not publicly, not from this platform. But I can tell you I'm convinced of what it's representing here. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus, of course. It's absolutely a representation, some manifestation of some, of, of some I'm not sure of some manner, but, but of some manner, it's a representation and a manifestation of the Lord Jesus. How do we know this? Well, first off, because Scripture tells us so. Now, you have to make some inferences. It doesn't say necessarily, Jesus is the tree of life and he grew up as a big oak and it was this and that. And he's established. It doesn't say that. But we know, well, based on the characteristics of this tree, that it reflects, presents the Lord Jesus there. John fourteen six. We know that eternal life is found only, only in and through the Lord Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus himself said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are singulars. Those are explicit, singular, uh, whatever, whatever type of word the is. He is the way, the truth, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, just to put an exclamation point on it, just to stamp that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what about this eternal life stuff, living forever by eating of this tree? Well, precisely, what of it? It's a manifestation of the Lord. Now, you understand as you read the Old Testament, as you've studied it for yourself, you understand that even the Old Testament faithful before Jesus walked on this earth, they were saved. Well, by faith in God, certainly. But their respective sin, even before Jesus walked, it was paid for by Jesus himself too, you understand. Jesus, is, well, his life and his blood was shed for all sins, past, present, and those ones to come. Jesus is the Redeemer, even for those ones who didn't know the name Jesus. That being said, there is no other way. There is no other way to the Lord and to eternal life except for by Christ, period. So, Just as I don't believe, and I will throw this out there, this is kind of my opinion, I don't believe the tree of knowledge of good and evil held some mystical power in and of the fruit. I think it was the act of taking that fruit and understanding disobedience and rejection and rebellion against the word of God that was the introduction of the knowledge of good and evil, specifically the knowledge of evil to God's, well, his created ones. I'm not sure what the mystical power was in the tree of life. I'm not sure what it looked like there in the garden. But I understand that it presented the power that is reserved solely for the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. So I believe it was a manifestation of Him in whatever capacity that is. I'm not given to understand exactly, entirely what it is. 
But I believe that a piece of the Lord Jesus' power and presence was there. We could go deeper into it, and I could tell you, well, there's a cherubim that was set out there to guard the way. Point you to some recent lessons where we consider what cherubim represent and that sort of thing, and I kind of would make the correlation there that there is a certain measure of defense and ruling and reigning among those ones who are those ones closest to the Lord. There was a proximity of that cherubim to that tree of life. There's a proximity of those nearest believers, those full overcomers to the Lord Jesus, but I'm going to leave that there and not make conjectures and speculations where I can't back those up. That being said, I believe that the tree of life is a representation. I think it's an impossible notion that it couldn't be some measure, some manifestation of the Lord Jesus himself. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 tells us this, When kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by works of righteousness or by any other means of making it happen, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Whatever the tree of life was in the garden, however it looked, whatever fruit was on it, whatever power was, was present there, the point is that there was impossibility to lay hold of it, of one's own efforts. The cherubim were put there, flaming sword. No one was going to make it through there. No one was going to be able to go up there and partake of that, so we see further shades of the Lord Jesus. Not by any works that we might do, not by any righteous things or any shady efforts we might make at eternal life. Not going to get there. It's absolutely impossible for anyone just to reach out and take it. If you're going to try to force your way into eternal life, well, you're going to bring the reality of judgment upon yourself is what you're going to do, figuratively speaking or literally, if you're trying to make your way to that tree of life and take it for yourself. There's no work around there, and nor is there salvation in any other, it says in Acts 4 and verse 12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And eternal life is only found. We considered it with Brother David for weeks. How eternal life is found only in Jesus, only in that new creation. The opposite is eternal death. And that's not what it promises here. That's not what it offers here through the tree of life. So, yeah, it's Jesus is the only way to eternal life. This tree is an image to some measure, some manifestation of his glory at the very least. Now, we can look and see its location isn't a surprise, going back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. Its location to come, where it says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Uh, the paradise of God, that term paradise, that one that's translated as paradise here, is only offered a few times in the New Testament, two other places outside of this passage here. Jesus says it once, remember this in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, speaking to that, well, that thief on the cross, that dear, dear, tender story, that one who reviled Jesus and then came to, well, end up going to be with him in the very last moments, in the very last seconds. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise when all he did was say, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I'll remember you. It's a done deal. Uh, paradise. You'll be with me in paradise today. There's another account. 
that uses this term in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Saints, as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let me encourage you. There, I'm bringing a lot of stuff in each one of these lessons. I'm sure that all the subsequent lessons after this are going to carry just as much information. Do seek this out and search it out to see that these things are so for yourself. Don't just take what I'm ta- presenting from the pulpit here and be satisfied with it or be dissatisfied with it and leave it just hang. Go and seek it out for yourself. There is a lot here, and it's worth your study. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. This is Paul speaking here. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2. And he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. A lot of debate on what the third heaven is, and you hear the term seventh heaven, and people say it's not the ultimate heaven, it's... I believe that the third heaven is the residence of the Lord Jesus today. I think it's the residence of God. It is what we see right here is heaven. The stars are what you might call the second heaven. Third heaven is the residence of the Lord. I believe that that's where this one that Paul was speaking of, probably himself that he's talking about here, was caught up to. And he heard some things there. He says, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He wants to reiterate that. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, if my belief is so, and that third heaven is where where God resides, then the paradise that Jesus promised to that man on the cross, and this paradise that Paul found himself, or this one in, in 2 Corinthians 12, well, both of them are characterized by the presence of Jesus, aren't they? Jesus is there. Uh, Wherever it was that the thief on the cross went with the Lord Jesus, whether it was to the place where the saved dead resided for that time, then he carried them up, or if he found himself in glory with him before his father, he was with him in paradise. And Jesus made that place paradise, wherever it might have been. This one here, after when Paul was speaking here, certainly that was well after Jesus had, had led captivity captive. And so I believe that he was in heaven where Jesus was at that time. And so we recognize Jesus' home now, eternally, will be in heaven. His throne is at the center of his people. In the midst of that heavenly city that we read about in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, if you turn to Revelation 22, we understand where Jesus will be for eternity, where the throne of the Lamb is, where the Lamb is its temple, where the Lamb is its light, where the Lamb is its sustenance, as you read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. But we'll read a piece in Revelation 22, verse 1, where John is there looking at this new Jerusalem, this city of heaven, you could say. And he showed me a river, pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, look what's there, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. There was a prolific tree. Again, imagery is present here to some extent. I'm not sure exactly what this tree looks like, but it's prolific in its production and its fruitfulness. It's always providing and always providing in abundance. There aren't too many trees around here Well, I'm not sure that there are any trees around these parts that is providing 24-7, 365 days a year. They tend to go dormant. 
This one's producing, well, yielding its fruit every month. Twelve fruits every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That sounds like the Lord Jesus to me. Uh, That sounds consistent with his work. For the nations, uh, for people past, for people present, for people to come. You can read in Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. That sounds, well, that sounds to me like healing for the nations. Psalm 67 verses 1 through 4 gets a little bit clearer. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Salat says in Psalm 67 1. Verse 2 says that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Jesus himself said, I am the vine, you are the branches. We recognize he is a branch of righteousness. We see that he is the healer of nations, and we know that he's in the midst personally of the paradise of God. I think Jesus is that tree of life. However it's manifested, whether in Genesis 2, 3, Revelation 21, 22, whatever the case might be, it's a manifestation or representation of the Lord Jesus. Now our statement tells us that those who desire will eat of abundance from that tree. Will eat abundantly. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Well, eating from this tree... That's not much different in terminology or phraseology of eating of the bread of life, is it? We're familiar with that term. In the Greek, this word eat is phago. If, you're, if you take A and P or anything like that, you'll learn about phagocytes, which are types of cells that we have in our bodies that essentially when an intruder comes in, some kind of you know, uh, pathogen or a sickness or an illness, these phagocytes will go and they give a big hug to those those bad cells, and eat it. That's what they do. They consume it. Wrap it all up and kill it dead if everything's working appropriately and working right. It eats it. It consumes it uh, abundantly, effectively, completely, you could even say. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat abundantly. Eat abundantly from that tree of life. Jesus didn't shy away from that kind of imagery, did he? Even when it kind of offended people. When he talked about eating of the bread, eating of his body. Mark 14 and verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He wanted us to partake of him, partake of his, well, the fellowship of his suffering, partake of his sacrifice, recognize and take it for ourselves and the healing work that comes as a result of it. John chapter 6 and verse 32, Then Jesus said to them in John 6 and verse 32, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus speaking about himself in third person here. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And so Jesus clarified to those ones who were willing to hear. He said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never Thirst. Now listen, saints, some are going to taste of the bread of life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? We sing that song. That also comes from Scripture. Some will taste of the tree of life. We'll partake of that fruit. 
and have eternal life and become a child of God. But not all of God's people we understand as we are considering in this theme of this whole study, the theme of so many studies we've had in the past. Not all are going to go back to that tree and continue to partake of that fruit. Some will taste of the tree in this natural life and then step away. Even if just to an extent, just step back and give it some time. Listen, the tree is fruitful 12 months of the year. 12 months of the year, we read in Revelation 22. It's always fruitful, always abundant, always putting out fruit. These ones who will just taste of the Lord. Well, they'll be saved and that will do for them. And they'll look for other things. Not him that overcomes. Him that overcomes will taste and see that the Lord is good and will stay near to that tree. Will stay near and continue partaking of the bread of life. Jesus told us to do that in Matthew 6 verse 25. Matthew 6.25, he said, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life. I just paraphrased that. made a contraction when evidently Jesus didn't have a contraction there. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Naturally speaking, don't worry about that. It's going to be seen to. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, as a matter of fact, it is. It is about more than that. Life is indeed about more than eating, naturally speaking. Of being clothed, naturally speaking. Of drinking, naturally speaking. We understand life is intended. As I've, well, I hope that it's a hammered, been hammered home over the last two weeks. Life is about feasting spiritually. It's about going back. And going back and going back and seeking more and more and more and abundance and abundance and abundance. It's not gluttonous to ask for and receive more of the Lord Jesus. It's not gluttony. It's what we're intended. It's what he wants for us. Life is about faith and growing in faith and deepening faith and broadening faith. And it's about learning to love the Lord Jesus more and more and more. And as as as. And I don't say that flippantly. You know, it's easy to say, oh, I love Jesus. It's easy to say, you need to love Jesus. And Jesus loves you. It's easy to say that flippantly. I don't mean it flippantly or tritely at all. It's all about learning to love him more so that we might desire more and more to draw near to him. To want to be with him. To love him so much we don't want any separation. Any chance of separation for eternity. If you kept your thumb in Revelation 2, this church that he was speaking to through John in Revelation chapter 2, this was Ephesus that he was speaking to, what were, what were they chastised about by Jesus? What was one of the issues that he had with them? He recognized their works, recognized their labor, patience, inability to bear those who are evil we see in chapter 2. The Lord knows our works. He has searched us out. He knows what it is that's holding us back. What was holding them back in Revelation 2.4? He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. I'm sorry, there it is. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first, your chief, your primary, your foremost love. It can mean first, you know, chronologically as well. Guess who our first true love is? Well, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God, right? So we didn't even know how to love until we knew the Lord Jesus. Lord, I want you to be my Savior. Guess what? He's your first true love. I don't mean that romantically. That sounds funny coming out of my mouth. 
He's your first real love. And these ones step away from that, separated from that for some for some reason, some abundance of reasons, or maybe individual, you know, whatever might have come in, whatever distracted, choked out. I have this against you. You've left your first love, he said. He that overcomes is going to deepen in love for the Lord, is going to draw nearer, is not going to leave, at least not stay away from him. He's going to drink of the well. He's going to eat of the bread. He's going to pursue and pursue and pursue. And again, let me remind you when I say he, 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 it's just merely a pronoun for my own simplicity. She, she, she who overcomes. This is anybody. Anybody who will overcome will deepen in love for the Lord. Will partake of his abundance in this life. And it will be reflected in eternal life. It will be reflected in eternity. All of the blessings, all the things that we seek even now will be expounded and will be exponentiated when we're standing before him. When we're residing next to him. When he says, I will give you to eat from the tree of life, we can taste of it today. And we can go back to that tree repeatedly as often as our physical bodies and natural circumstances will allow us to. In eternity, we can partake of that 24-7, again, for eternity. Saints, the tree of life is a mystery. There's no getting around it. There's no fully understanding, I don't believe. We don't understand all of its history. It's only given in Genesis there, that little small piece that we might understand. There are allusions to it that I didn't go to throughout Scripture here that we can tie into it, but for time's sake, I didn't go to all of those things. We don't understand all of its future impact on us, but I think that we get enough of it that it should be something that we should desire, that it's one of these seven statements that he's made, one of these seven blessings or assurances that he makes to those ones who will overcome. Here's what I do believe we can know. If it isn't a manifestation of the Lord Jesus himself, it's absolutely intended to reflect him. We have tasted of its fruit, if you will. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so we have. We have trusted in him. We have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We have tasted. Come and see. Come and taste of him. Partake of him and recognize how good he is. But the tree of life offers himself continually. And he offers himself abundantly. And he offers himself to be partaken of in the same way. In this life and in the next. If you want to call eternity that. He goes on in Psalm 34, 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Don't just taste. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. There is no those who recognize who he is and have some understanding of what he offers and what he gives and what he presents to us. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Oh man, that's, that's beyond my capability to really... I just I don't believe I can overcome. It's beyond, it's beyond my understanding, you know. I don't... I don't really fully get, I'm just happy, just happy to enter into his kingdom. I'll be satisfied with that. Well, if the Lord isn't satisfied with it, well, then how dare I be satisfied with it? If he offers something more, then why would I refuse him? That's taking the power, so to speak, away from him. Taking the the generosity and the graciousness on his part, and I'm refusing it, well, as though, uh, I don't know, 
as though we're justified in doing so. That's unjust. It is unjust. I guess if you want to put it in, in a natural context, it's rude at best. It's rude. I paid for this for you. I thought about you. I prepared this gift. I, I thought about our experience and our past together, and I thought about everything that's good for you. I want you to have this. Oh, I don't deserve that. No, saints. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. He wants to give you every good thing. So you who have ears, he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We might not understand it entirely. I don't believe we can understand it entirely until we're there to witness it and see it for ourselves. Hopefully to partake of it day after day and moment after moment. But what I can understand is that the Lord wants it for me. He wants it for you. And, well, may we not leave our first love, child of God. May we pursue loving Him more and more so that we might recognize, even now, have a better understanding of what the tree of life is, even today. And then He'll show us in eternity what, what it all means. And we'll have the deepest fullest measure of it for that time.